Welcome everyone to a fun and exciting another episode of the Ethi Awards, episode 27. I want to do this and I always forget to do this. I want to apologize. I want to personally thank our patrons. Um, I'm just thankful. Thank you very much. We're going to get some individual content for you, just your eyes only. Um, We actually have the Ethi Awards on video, so we'll start releasing uh, some segments of last year's Ethi Awards. Uh, You'll get to to hold the whole video, right, the whole multimedia experience uh, for our patrons. So thank you so much for those of you who are patrons. Those of you who are not, there'll be a commercial at the end, but patreon.com, you go to the Ethi Awards and find us. Thanks so much, everybody. All right. That said, let's get started. Um, right now, we have four new cases. Our first nominee, one of my favorite movies growing up, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, you should be coming on pretty soon, dude. How much do you smoke? This will be a little demonstration of that. Listen, listen up. That was my skull. I'm so wasted. Of course, that was Sean Penn, Jeff Spicoli, everyone's favorite character in the movie. Well, except for the half of us who loved us and Phoebe Cates. But anyway, let's just move past that for now. Obviously, I couldn't uh, show that famous scene right on audio because that wouldn't have made any sense. All right. That said, Jeff Spicoli has grown up and he's apparently moved to the Big Apple. The New York Bar just released an ethics opinion uh, to clarify two things for New York lawyers who had been concerned about these two issues. And the first issue they had was, could they service their clients and help them with their marijuana businesses now that New York has allowed for uh, recreational marijuana? The second thing they asked is, um, can, can we get a little puff? <laughs> right? Would it be okay for lawyers to inhale? Now, why would this be a question at all? The reason it's a question is because of federal law. I don't want to get too technical in this, but but as you know, the federal um, drug laws still list marijuana as a controlled substance. I think one of the higher grade substances. And as a result, it's it's a federal crime to do something that's legal in the states. Now, it's been the case, I think, since Obama said, I'm not going to enforce it. So (laughs) the federal FBI agents aren't going to be knocking down people's door, all right, looking for for weed, or at least not to mess them for it. They might, you know, want to have a party. But for the most part, they're not going to do that. However, Obama didn't want to be Snoop Obama-bama, right? He didn't want to be the guy who was famous for getting rid of the weed. And obviously, Trump wasn't going to do it. Maybe Biden will do it. Um, probably not. Kamala can't do it. Right? She, she can't be the one who, if she gets to be the next president, who's... And so we have a situation where probably for the next 40, 50 years, this law will be on our books, not being enforced by anyone, but just there to confuse people and make every lawyer have to worry about it. Hopefully you know by now that it's an ethics violation for lawyers to violate the criminal law. Now, let's be clear. The rule itself in most jurisdictions says that it has to be a law that affects adversely the lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness as a lawyer in other respects. In other words, jaywalking, okay, tearing a tag off the mattress, that's not going to qualify. 
cheating on your spouse, which is a crime in most states for some reason won't qualify under the bar rules, which is sad, but we'll, we'll get to that in another time. However, there is some right con- illegal conduct that will qualify, obviously, lots of stuff. And so the bar, literally the New York bar had to write an opinion saying, look, the things that are would be a violation here, it's just a technical violation. There's no violence, right? Uh, it's not a dishonesty, fraud, breach of trust, serious administration of, uh, serious interference with the administration of justice. So we're just going to leave it alone. Let it go. That said, the bar did make clear at the very end, wanted to make sure that they were on record as saying, look, hey, you can puff, puff, pass, pass, but don't puff, 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 puff. And then want to remind lawyers that we have an ethical obligation to actually keep ourselves healthy. And that it's free from debilitating addictions. This is, you know, basically, you know, it's like alcohol, you know, it, it's good in moderation, but this could be a problem. So, you know, make sure, you know, that you smoke with friends, right? You don't just keep all the weed to yourself. I'm paraphrasing. Okay. It is interesting though that the bar wanted to make sure that they had something to say, right? Make sure they had something, you know, some word of warning. But on the other hand, if you're in New York now, right, smoke them if you got them. Ready to water, miss? Oh, yeah. Um, I will start with monogamy, then commitment, and then I will have the marriage. The marriage comes with commitment, ma'am. Unless you'd like something on the side. Oh, no, not me, but maybe children later. Good choice, ma'am. I understand the monogamy is very good here. And for you, sir? Uh, just a side order of sex, please. I can't do that, sir. It only comes with commitment. All right, I'll make it easy for you. I'll take the complete dinner. You hold the commitment, you hold the monogamy, and just bring me the sex. That way nobody gets in trouble and I get what I want. You want me to hold the monogamy? Dan, can't you read the sign? That was a clip from the movie He Said, She Said. Now, I tell you, when I pull these clips up, I look at a number of clips from a movie. Have not seen that whole movie. Don't think I will. Seems like a very strange movie. It starred two of my favorite actors, Kevin Bacon and Elizabeth Perkins. And remember you, a lot of you don't remember Elizabeth Perkins, but back in the 80s and 90s, she was in everything. Now, she's in a lot of stuff now, but I mean everything. The movie About Last Night, Avalon, Miracle on 34th Street, even the Flintstones. And I don't mean that one, the second one that got crazy and had you no, know, you know, me and, and, and some people from the local playhouse in it. I mean the movie that had John Goodman, right, Rick Moranis, Rosie O'Donnell, Elizabeth Perkins played Wilma Flintstone. That's big time. That's almost like Lady Macbeth. All right, that, that's huge. Anyway, let's get past that. The point is that this is the movie is he said she said it's a nominee in the category of the Hitchcock Award, and just to remind you the Hitchcock we give that every year to lawyers who have that Hitchcock moment. Remember Hitchcock is the master of suspense, so there's that moment where a person turns ta da! Can't believe they've been disbarred. I have to confess they Hitchcocked me on this one. When I read it, I was like ta da! We've got a Kansas lawyer here who gets disbarred for filing false papers without adequate investigation. Now, let's be clear. A lawyer has an obligation to not file documents asserting facts that he knows are not true, asserting lies. 
Normally, when a lawyer gets a matter from a client, a lawyer has no idea what the facts are. How could you? You were in your office. That person was out there doing whatever they were doing. Oftentimes, when a lawyer files a lawsuit on behalf of the client, he is taking the client's word for everything. And so there'll be a lot of phrases like, upon information and belief. Right? Basically, this is what this fool told me. I'm not asserting it. <laughs> Here we have an adoption matter. The lawyer is representing the would-be adoptive parents. And they are looking to adopt this child, but what they need to do first is terminate the biological father's parental rights. The mother has given up her rights, but the father is out there. And so what they do is, is that the, they file a petition and say, look, the father has abandoned the child. Under Kansas law, if even before birth, if you abandon the birth mother, say, I don't want anything to do with this baby, then you have given up your parental rights. The problem here is that the birth mother says that <laughs> he didn't abandon me knowing I was pregnant and then just walked away because I didn't know I was pregnant. This is one of those cases where, you know, you go, you go to the bathroom at 3 in the morning and boom, here's a baby. Right? I'm not sure, by the way, how that happens, who's not paying attention. I don't know. I'm not a woman, so maybe that happens every Tuesday. Um, <laughs> but the point is this, though, is that even though the the young woman, the adoptive mother, says uh, he never really abandoned the baby because neither one of us knew we were having one, the lawyer files more paperwork saying, no, 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 he abandoned the child has the adoptive parents come up and say, oh, yeah, yep, he abandoned the, the child and, and, and the mother, which, of course, you can't do that. Now, why would the lawyer not believe the, the, the biological mother? And the lawyer says openly, these women are crazy. He says biological mothers often lie. Not clients, but biological mothers. I know what she said, but I don't believe her. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting here is I wasn't shocked by that. In every case, somebody is lying. And, I, and I'm not being flippant about that. It has to be the case. The way our system works is that if there are no underlying disputes about the facts, we all agree what the facts are, there's never a case, or there's at least never a jury trial, because the judge is responsible for saying, okay, if these are the facts, I'll apply the law to the facts. The reason we have juries and testimony and all that type of stuff is we're trying to figure out the facts. There's a credibility issue, right? One side comes in and says, no, nope, it was raining all day. The other side says, are you kidding me? I live in the Sahara Desert, it hasn't rained here since Jesus. That's why we have cases, because most often one party's lying, let's be clear, both parties are lying. Lawyers don't normally get in trouble because they're representing clients who are lying, because otherwise they'd be in trouble all the time. Here is different, and a couple of things that the lawyer did that got the lawyer in trouble. One, it was an adoption case, and the results of the lawyer not believing right, what the birth mother told him was that everyone kind of got, got screwed here. The adoptive parents won their original case, got custody of the child, and then about a year later, the father appeals to the, to the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, and then they have to redo all this, send the baby to another home. It's traumatic for everybody. So the, the, the bar is already like, hey, 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 you know, this isn't just money. You mess with people's lives. Uh, secondly, it wasn't the only time a lawyer had done this. 
this is apparently the lawyer's business. The Kansas Supreme Court accused him of being a child trafficker. Uh, any time someone throws in um, and, and assigns an er to you, right? Murderer. <laughs> uh, or ist, right? You've got a problem. You don't ever want to be accused of being a trafficker anything, okay? Maybe stuck in traffic. But if you're a trafficker, it's going to be a problem. Here's a lesson that we hopefully we can all take from this. Because you don't have to be a lawyer to take this from it. When the facts change, your position should change. This was my challenge as a lawyer and as an employee. While I have lots of faults, more than I'm ever going to tell you, I am pretty good about this. When facts change, I do change my position. I don't see how I can't. <laughs> but here's a challenge for lawyers, for advisors, for employees, is that the person who's most vested in this, they don't always change their facts. Think about it. Most of us in a personal relationship, we don't change the facts about anything, right? 40 years later, I am still mad at my first girlfriend. She cheated on me. I'm sure I was cheatable. I, I deserved a cheating, whatever it was, but I have not quite come to grips and, and with my culpability in, in, in the relationship you know, 30 years ago, right? Because when it's personal, you don't tend to be so objective about it. As a lawyer, an advisor, an employee of any company, your job actually is, you can be objective about it. It's not your money. And this is where it kind of creates this conflict. The client is never going to really change their mind. I don't care what facts come in, they're going to tell you they are entitled to get what they want. And it's very, very difficult to say to someone who's paying your bills, hey, I know you feel this way, but the facts have come in and you crazy, girl. I'm going to encourage you to figure out a more diplomatic way to say it, but you got to say it some way. Otherwise, you end up driving Uber like this lawyer. No stuff of lights, cops, nothing. Going to join your wife? You love her? Yes. You ever imagine what it would be like to listen to her die? Look, take it up with a joke. He killed your woman. He made you like this. The Joker's just a mad dog. I want whoever let him off the leash. I took care of words. But who's your other man inside Gordon's unit? Who picked up Rachel? Must have been someone she trusted. Look, if I tell you, you let me go. Can't hurt your chances. It was Ramirez. But you said, said it couldn't hurt your chances. You're a lucky man. He's not. Who? That was a clip from the movie The Dark Knight. And that's a Batman movie. The character you heard there was the character of Two-Face. The category here is Most Creative Tale. Now in popular parlance, the term Two-Face doesn't refer to some horribly disfigured person who is going to completely ruin your popcorn experience in the theater. Trust me on that. 
You're not going to be able to watch Two-Face and eat your popcorn and enjoy it. All right, pick one or the other. But what the term does mean is to change your story depending upon the audience you're talking to. Someone is two-faced if they praise you to your face but drag you behind your back. And this New Mexico lawyer did the legal equivalent of that. He bought a $200,000 Ferrari and put it in his business's name, even though he was using it for personal use. Because who needs a $200,000 delivery truck, right? He wasn't going to be driving right Lyft with this. This is, you know, his toy. But why is he putting in his business name? Why not just be, you know, think about it. You could be balling. Why not, you know, claim all your ballerness? Because to do so would cost him an extra $6,000 in excise taxes. It was cheaper if the business owned it. And so a little while later, the car gets dinged. By coincidentally, one of the tenants that he rents to in the office building he owns. So, of course, a lawyer does what you do with any tenant, who, by the way, in this case, is described as a 90-year-old paraplegic woman. But anyway, lawyer does what anybody would do. He sues her. (laughs) <laughs> and sues her on, on behalf of the business that owns the car. They win the case. He gets a judgment. Around the same time, though, this same business is being sued by someone else. And they win their case and get a $200,000 judgment against the lawyer's business. Now, the lawyer wouldn't have to pay that judgment. So he starts transferring assets out of the corporation, including the car. Right? He says, hey, you know, this is my car. Puts in his name personally. When the plaintiff tries to collect, there are no assets in, in the company. And the judge says, hey, uh, you can't just empty the piggy bank. And, and, and here's the fun part. The lawyer said, what are you talking about? This is my car. What business would have a car like this? I've always owned this car. This has always been my car. Uh-huh. Now, as two faces that may seem to go into one court and say, this car belongs to my business. And then walk right across the street and say, nope, this has always been my car. It's my baby. That sounds something, some wrong there. And there is, but I get what the lawyer is thinking. There's a concept that every law student learns to our peril uh, called arguing in the alternative. And basically the thought here is that if you're arguing a case on behalf of a client, and you think you have numerous grounds in which to win, you can write in your pleading. We think these facts are as certain, and this is why we win because of reason A. But if the facts are actually the other thing, we think we should win because of reason B. And if the facts are another thing, we have another legal theory that says we should win on C. So you cover all your bases. The problem is, is that it's one thing to make the argument, hey, if this is the case, we still win. It's another thing, though, to make consistent, inconsistent, factual claims. It was raining on Tuesday. Your Honor, it was snowing on Tuesday. Your Honor, there's no such thing as Tuesday. (laughs) The classic example that I, you know, that I think of arguing an alternative is, Your Honor, if you have a, representing someone and their dog has bitten someone, you could argue, one, Your Honor, on, upon information and belief, I don't believe my client owns a dog. Now, if he does own a dog, it's still not, he's not responsible because that dog, to my information and belief, doesn't have teeth. 
All right, you, you tell me he has teeth? Okay, if he has teeth, the victim started it. That is the kind of argument that you can charge four or $500 an hour for, and as long as you're not asserting those facts as certainties, as long as you're saying, hey, even if that is the case, that's one thing. It's another thing, though, to actually assert the inconsistent points. That does not work in the practice of law, as you're going to see now. It certainly wouldn't work, by the way, outside the practice of law. This is where a lot of young lawyers and law students get in trouble. I can speak to this from personal experience. I was dating a young woman in law school. She became concerned about the women, the time I was spending with you know, the women and men, but some of the women in my study group. I had just learned how to argue on an alternative. And so I'm like, look, baby, one, there are no women in my study group. Two, the women in my study group are ugly. Three, it's just sex with them. I'm really in love with you. You're going to find it hard to believe, but we broke up. Yeah, we broke up three four times uh, over that one. That is never going to work with a regular person. All right? <laughs> Arguing alternative is only something that you can do in federal court, maybe state court, and you certainly can't factually assert those things. You have to say, you know, if he was. He or he's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, even if I don't own the car, this is what happens. He's saying, I don't own it. Yes, I do. Uh, over here, who, who's listening? You, you can't be two-faced. Now, amazingly, this lawyer only got a censure because I would have disbarred him. And here's why I would have disbarred him. Not because what he did here was so egregious, but because he owns a Ferrari. It, let's be clear. I don't think I'm the only one. I hate Ferrari owners. And I'm going to be honest with it because I'm jealous. I'm not going to lie. That's what it is. One, uh, $200,000 for a car, uh, that, that, that's going to set me back a little bit. Uh, that, that'll leave a mark on me. Uh, you know, it's going to hurt. Uh, secondly, uh, it's definitely going to hurt because I, I have four kids. So unless we're going to be doing this Flintstone style, I'm going to be putting them on top of Dino on the outside of the car. Um, my wife's going to make me take it back. So I already hate the people because they get to have a Ferrari that even if I had the money, I, I can't have. And then you're going to be cheap with it. Right. I've already made up all kinds of assumptions about you, about your um, personal inadequacies, right? Maybe some of your anatomy. I, I, I've made those judgments, but you can't then be cheap. You bought a two hundred thousand dollar car, but you're trying to finagle your way into, you know, not paying a six thousand dollars of excise tax. If, if you can pay for this, the two thousand dollar car, uh, you can put the three percent on it. All right, for the for the excise taxes. So, so help me not hate you so much. If you own an expensive luxury car, pay your taxes. And our very last nominee today is the movie A Quiet Place. I think you can, if you're familiar at all with the movie, you will know why there won't be an audio clip to introduce this movie. Because the entire premise of the movie was that everybody in the movie had to stay absolutely quiet or they would die. So um, the audio clip would, would not exactly be helpful here, all right? That said, um, there's something, all right, that this Delaware lawyer could have learned from the movie, and that was basically to shut up. The lawyer is representing a well-known college athlete in Delaware um, who's been charged with r raping six different women. Rightfully so, the case has attracted a bunch of media attention. During the course of proceedings, the judge decides, look, wait, you know, this is too crazy. There's different times and, and, and instances. we got to try all of these cases separately. 
So the defendant can have a fair trial and confront each accuser, right, individually, separately. So he sets up a series of six cases. They're going to go in order. He's going to keep the same lawyer and just go from, you know, case to case. Now, the judge says, while we're doing this, and this is going to take a while now, right, i got six different cases, I don't want to have to try this case both in this courtroom and in the media. So lawyers, when you go out there, you shut up. Well, not really. His gag order is strange in this regard. It doesn't say, shut up, don't say anything to anybody ever. It says, don't say nothing. And maybe I'm paraphrasing. But don't say anything to anyone that would violate ethics rule 3.6, which deals with pretrial publicity. Now, that's weird to me. How do you issue any order that says, okay, don't violate the thing that you're not supposed to violate even if I don't issue an order? Right? It'd almost be like if he issued an order uh, uh, saying, you know, a no-kill order. You cannot kill anybody in the course of this case. Well, you couldn't do that anyway. All right? But anyway, there is, I think, a reason technically why you want to issue these orders because now the lawyer, if they break it, won't just be in violation of the rule but also a separate rule about being in violation of a court order. So you, I guess you need a little more meat to the bone. In any event, the rule the lawyer can't violate with, with or without the court order, without the gag order, is the rule that says that a lawyer may not make an extrajudicial statement that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know will be disseminated by means of public communication and will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing, prejudicing, you know what I'm saying, all right? <laughs> Making it harder for an adjudicated proceeding in the matter. Now, there are two kind of, you know, very nebulous and vague terms here. One, the lawyer know or should know that the statement will be disseminated. And that's actually, I guess, not as nebulous. In this case, the lawyer gave an interview for newspaper, so he knew it was going to go out. But this other thing, there's substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know why I get that word, prejudicing, right? Uh, an adjudicated proceeding, well, I don't know what does that. That's kind of vague here. In any event... The first trial starts, ends, and the defendant is convicted on one of the, the counts. While they're waiting for sentencing, the lawyer gets a call from a newspaper and says, hey, we want to interview for a piece we're doing about this case. And the lawyer sits down and agrees to talk to them. And he doesn't talk to them about you know, grounds for appeal or anything like that. But the lawyer does say that he was horrified about the prosecutor's statements. The prosecutor had implicitly blamed the defendant's parents for his actions, said that the kid had been raised in a permissive atmosphere, that this kind of thing was considered normal, that his parents had sort of created this you know, expectation that he should have all the girls. And as a result, the lawyer says, the defense lawyer says, this is disgusting. You can't you know, try the guy's parents too. There's no excuse for that. Why would you do that to a parent? The prosecution hears this, or reads it in the paper, and is offended by it personally, and then says, hey, look, you know, we've got these other cases coming up. I can't be seen as this zealous, right, rabbit dog who's just going after this innocent kid for whatever reason. This is going to prejudice my case. Takes to the judge, and the judge says, yeah, I think you're right. They move forward to the second trial. Um, same thing happens. The lawyer is convicted again of sexual... I'm sorry, the client is convicted again of sexual assault. Once again, before sentencing, 
the lawyer takes another interview. And the newspaper's like, hey, you lost two in a row here. What's going on? And the lawyer says, hey, you know, it was kind of bad there. We, you know, there was reasonable basis for the verdict. But it wouldn't have happened if the victim didn't put herself in this position. In other words, he's blaming the victim. Right? How dare you have sexual parts to be assaulted? That's offensive, period, but it's certainly offensive to the prosecutor who says, hey, you know, we got these other women coming up. He's creating this, you know, atmosphere where these women should be, you know, ashamed to, to be women, that they were, you know, asking for it. And as a result, he goes to the judge and the judge says, look, this is twice you've done this now. Holding you in contempt, and I'm fining you $5,000. And we just got word now the Delaware Supreme Court said, absolutely. We're going to uphold this one. Now, in one sense, this is a tough call. How do you know whether your statement will prejudice the proceedings? It seems like almost any statement could have that effect. And the truth is, it can which is why the real and good thing to do in this context is to shut up. You certainly are not helping your client here. The jury is <laughs> the, the people who need to be right talked to, not you know the general public. Sometimes there's a, a fear and this concern. There's actually even a safe harbor um, principle that says if the prosecution is out there saying things they're not supposed to say and prejudicing the jury against your client, you can kind of fight back against that. But that's not what's happening here. This lawyer is really trying to try to, you know, build his own case here. He's talking to the media. He's, he's a guy, who, you know, he's really kind of brash. By the way, he's 75. Um, buddy, if you haven't made it by now, if everyone doesn't know your name, it's not cheers. Right? If you're not walking down the street in Delaware, which, by the way, is only as big as, as my apartment. All right. But if you're not walking down the street in Delaware and people don't know your name already, uh, they're not going to know it's 76. All right. So I'm not sure what kind of advertising you, you should be thinking about getting a hobby, maybe. Right? Seeing the grandkids, get a motorhome. In any event, the lawyer here um, is, 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 is in trouble. Um, it's not the worst trouble. You know, he's got to pay his fine. Apparently, he's been practicing for 50 years, so he should have the 5000 It's $100 a year. But here is the reminder for most of us, is that the lawyer here messed up because they're playing it too close to the line. And this is something that we all have to remember. If you don't know where the line is, then you need to set it very, very far back. And I'll give you a great example from something that I just do. I'm not saying everyone has to do this. It's just my a practice I have. And I got this because I travel a lot. And I, you know, I, I, I was driving in Michigan once. I'm not bragging. It's where I was. And there was highway construction, and there was a sign that says, hey, if you hit any of our highway workers, you're going to get 10 years in prison and you know, $100,000 fine, or something like that. And I was thinking, wow, that's going to be a problem because I live in Arizona. And my wife loves me, but uh, I'm not sure she's going to you know, get on a plane to come see me in jail. This is going to be bad for the whole family. I get 10 years here, I need to pay attention. And it kind of struck me that as I travel, you know, nobody can afford to drive drunk, but I certainly can't. Right, I you know I I cannot be in a car, right, and and, and driving drunk, and even if it's just a you know an infraction where no one's injured, it's still not. So I'm not going to fly back, all right, to Cleveland because I you know I had too many to drink, and as a result, I realized that I had to set a rule, and I don't have a breathalyzer in my car. I'm not good at, at, at calculating my blood alcohol, so my general rule is simply this: I don't get behind the wheel of a car within 24 hours of drinking anything. One drink. Cough syrup. Do not get behind the wheel of a car. 
it's just a personal rule I have because of the, the situation I'm in. It's 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 bi- it's a bigger danger or you know inconvenience for me, right? To to ever be in a situation like that, and so I've set a rule that you know should protect me, all right, all the time. And this is what I'm suggesting you do, not with regard to drinking, but with regard to everything in life. Where if you don't know where the line is, because it's blurry, it's dark, then you stand way, way, way back from the line, because you don't know. And the thing that's interesting about Rule 3.6 is that until fairly recently, you had to be Gloria Allred for this type of thing to affect you. None of us really had any issues about this at, at all. I put this in the Joan Rivers category for, you know, sort of gossiping and talking too much. But this wouldn't have been an issue, you know, for most of us. Now, he's in a high-profile case. Most of us never have this issue. But we all have it now that we have these phones and devices and email and social media, etc. And I see it on a daily basis. People are on their phones. They, as soon as they get in the office, they want to tell what happened today in the office, right? And tell you about some case. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. The rule here does not say, oh, but by the way, it's okay on social media. And you should understand that anything can be disseminated on social media. I had a post last week that got shared 100,000 times. I'm not exaggerating. It happens from time to time. Okay? That is a situation where now a lot of people's eyes are on this. I'm glad I don't represent clients because I have nothing to say about them. But if you're spreading your business out there like that, you're going to run into problems. So I'm encouraging you to stand way back from the line and also um, try not to, 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 to drink and drive. All right. <laughs> that said, thanks so much, everyone, for being here. And we're going to see you next week, my patrons. Um, I will send you a message out of when we're going to have some, some new features for you next week. Um, send me an email or you know to the email to, to the Patreon site if you, if you like us to do special things here uh, maybe have a preview before the Supreme Court starts there a uh, new uh, term at the uh, beginning of October but anyway we'll see y'all next time thanks so much everybody and finally if you're a lawyer and you need your CLE don't hesitate to get it from Mesa CLE This is your comedic legal education, but it still counts as CLE. Mesa, M-E-S-A, C-L-E dot com. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, please feel free to go to patreon.com. Either look us up at Mesa CLE or the Ethie Awards. And we thank you so much. See you next time.